All right, good morning everyone. How are you? All right, well let me, uh, let me pray as we jump in. Father, we give you praise as the maker of all things, as the one who's even given such a beautiful morning, uh, such a marvelous salvation, the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. We thank you uh, for your mercies that you have poured out upon us through him. We thank you for uh, yeah, just life everlasting, for the hope of seeing you face to face, for the fellowship of the saints, for the body of Christ that you have redeemed and knit together through your son. And we thank you for your word that speaks to us clearly in ways the world doesn't. And for your word that sets before us just your creation in beautiful, distinctive, God-honoring ways over and against the wisdom of this world that would seek to demolish it. And so we pray that you would give us humble hearts, that you would give us attentive ears, that you would give us faith in all that you have written and spoken, that you would help us delight especially in maleness and femaleness, and just the beauty of what you have made and the reasons for which you have designed it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Chris, do you mind closing that door on your way? That'd be great. All right, well, biblical masculinity and manhood. That's our topic for this morning. We thought as we've talked about just God creating the world, God creating uh, men and women, God creating just the divine image of God and people. We thought this would be a great sort of weeks here ahead uh, to, to address this topic in particular of masculinity, femininity, homes, churches. How do we think about uh, maleness and femaleness according to the Word of God? Um, Genesis 1.26, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. 26 verses into the Bible, and God's going to make that clear. Male and female, he made them. And it doesn't take a genius, right, or someone who's been alive that long to realize this is an area where our world is confused. Where our world is becoming more confused with the ever-multiplying views of manhood and womanhood that exist in our world today. That apparently gender for many is no longer biologically and therefore divinely determined, but self-determined. I would say it's probably one of the most dangerous things in the world today is the idea of self-determination about everything. Just you can determine for yourself and then fill in the blank. That gender identity for some is no longer something you realize, but something you choose. Right? It used to be that as you're growing as a young man or woman, you're, you're realizing maleness and females as opposed to choosing or deciding. As of yeah, a year and a half ago, uh, if you're on Facebook in the United States, you get 58 gender options. And then now they've created just an open space where you can just fill in your own. If the 58 doesn't capture somewhere what you'd like to identify as, then you can just make up whatever word you would like to to say this is this is my gender agender gender fluid transgender male two spirit those are all just examples in the UK you get 71 options so depending on the country where you're at these options seem to be growing by the day I would even say the idea of masculinity and manhood really has suffered under very similar kinds of disorientation and confusion you just go out into the world today, go into the marketplace of ideas, go into any sort of social institution and ask the question, what does it mean to be a man? Or even, what does it mean to be a woman? And more likely than not, that question is either going to be dodged or shunned or mocked or even called discrimination just for asking it. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Though I would say all sane people, at least, silently acknowledge that there is an existence of maleness and an existence of femaleness. And we even recognize the need to organize society in some ways around it when it comes to restrooms, when it comes to military, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to many of the way that, that society has to organize at certain levels, recognizes, okay, you don't just throw everybody into the same bathroom. 
You don't throw everybody into the same locker room. But yet, how much of that has been disputed for years now? Not just in this country. I remember being in, in Europe in the 80s and 90s, and public restrooms and places in Europe were just wide open. And so there was even then lost the distinction uh, for many of them. Yeah, the pressure to diminish the very existence of gender is growing, let alone the distinctions of masculinity and femininity. And so even attempting to create some sense of distinction is seen as discrimination. <laughs> to say, here, here are attributes or things that are distinctively male. Here are things that are distinctively female. Even celebrating them. Here's how sort of the beauty that God has created in masculinity, beauty that God has created in femininity, that rather than that being celebrated and enjoyed and appreciated, it's seen as somehow demeaning to human personhood. And for that reason, I think we'll start with a few just kind of general definitions. Firstly, gender. You know, what is gender? Well, just one simple way to put it, it is the profile of characteristics related to being male or female. Gender is the profile of characteristics related to being male or female. It's an objective reality that is actually rooted in biology. There are certain chromosomes related to maleness, certain chromosomes related to femaleness that are, you know what, are actually decided at conception. <laughs> Did you know that? At conception. Maleness and femaleness. And then the way that child grows in the womb, there's actually distinctive differences if that child growing is male or female. There are distinctive differences in just how hormones work, how glands operate, even the size of the heart, the size of the lungs, the size of kidneys are distinctive to males and females how the body changes over time. Center of gravity, did you know that? That every man has a center of gravity in his chest. Every female has a center of gravity in her hips, right here. Just the way God would design it, to a man, to a woman. There's certain things, there's even been uh, different, I can't remember what some of the exercises are, if you get a man and put, have him bend over at a right angle with a head against a, a, a wall and then put a chair underneath him where he has to pick it up and then stand up from that position, there's not a man on earth that can do it. Like if it's designed in a certain way, but every woman on earth can do it because of where her center of gravity is compared to where a man's is. And so just the way God, you know, just there's characteristics, there's a profile of characteristics that are related to maleness, related to femaleness that actually has distinction. And that's some of what we would call, this is gender, that males have certain chromosomes in physical bodies, females have certain chromosomes, physical bodies. But then beyond that, I think there's also an, an intrinsic sort of awareness of maleness and femaleness, that as soon as boys come into the world and begin to grow, if they have a, a dad and a mom in the home, that boy begins to know something pretty quick about himself, and that is he is like who? He's like dad and distinctive in certain ways from mom. And that girl that's growing up begins to recognize, okay, I'm, I'm like mom and distinctive from dad in other ways. And it's nothing to do with lack of love. It's nothing to do with I don't feel connected or attached or there's just the intrinsic awareness that there's something about maleness and femaleness that is distinct. Yeah, little boys tend to identify with their fathers, little girls with their mothers. And we tend to refer to this sense of gender as masculinity, to this sense of gender as femininity, that masculinity is the experience and expression of maleness. It's one way to think about it. Masculinity is the experience and expression of maleness. Femininity is the experience and expression of femaleness. So then when we refer to manhood, we're referring to the maturity of masculinity. So as masculinity is maturing, this is what separates a boy from a man and a man from a boy. As femininity is maturing, it's doing so into womanhood. And so maturity of femininity is what separates a woman from a girl. Any questions about any of that before we keep going? Just some of the general definitions? 
The issue is bigger than gender. Namely, the road from gender, kind of through masculinity on into manhood, is susceptible actually to many influences, many forces, some constructive and some destructive, that you really can be in a home that nurtures masculinity and femininity in a healthy way. You can be in a home that is destructive when it comes to masculinity and femininity. You can be in a society, in a culture that's either helpful or hurtful when it comes to understanding what sort of true, healthy masculinity and femininity are. And so they can be encouraged or discouraged, taught rightly, taught wrongly. And so what I'm saying here is gender is not the only ingredient (laughs) to masculinity or to femininity. It's the baseline, it's the beginning, it's the foundation, but then it's also taught, it's also learned. It's also cultivated. I think as Christians, we ought to be concerned about manhood and womanhood. We need to be concerned with helping our young boys become healthy men and concerned with helping our young girls become healthy women. In other words, I don't think this is something that in our homes we just go, let's just see where it falls. I think it's something from the beginning we need to go, okay, how are we going to talk about this? How are we going to teach this? Especially depending on where your kids are going to go to schools, where, what kind of communities your kids are going to grow up in, what kind of messages your kids are going to hear. It's not enough to say, let's just see what the tide brings in. Um, it's an area where we have to be concerned. And by concerned, I don't mean worried. I mean involved, engaged. Which means going to God and his word for help. It means, okay, Lord, what, what do you teach us about these things? It means going to the Lord in prayer means submitting to his design and his decrees. It means really making the gospel of Christ central to our homes and truly making disciples. The issue is also about God and creation and scripture. It's also what I mean by it's bigger. It's bigger than gender. It's wrapped up in questions, or rather questions about manhood and womanhood is also wrapped up in questions about God. Questions about the Bible. Questions about creation. And so if definitions of manhood and womanhood are God-given realities, God-given creations, if God created male and female, then to diminish it or to twist it or to change it or to redefine it is not just about gender. That's about what we think of God. (laughs) That's about what we think of his word. That's about what we think of his creation. You know, Psalm 2, 1 through 3, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the, the rulers of the world sort of proclaiming against God and his anointed. We don't want your restrictions, your bonds, your cords that they didn't experience as love from God, but suffocation. So part of this rebellion is let's just get rid of all of this. Well, I see the attack on gender and manhood and womanhood is just one more in that theme. Let's cast their cords from us. Let's get rid of all the things that God and his anointed say we're to be or to do. Though perhaps unaware of the deeper reasons, I think just unbelieving hearts are going to be offended by uh, biblically defined maleness and biblically defined femaleness uh, for the same reasons that people are going to be offended by biblically defined anything, right? It <laughs> doesn't matter what the Bible says, just the fact that God's going to say it in the flesh, we're prone to be offended, And so why would we think something that God sees as so beautiful, so distinctive, so important, as in the beginning God created male and female, why would Satan leave that alone? You know, why would he not seek to corrupt it? (laughs) You know, what would make us think that the world in rebellion against God as a whole wouldn't also cast that cord off? That we're just not going to submit to God's design for things. I think that's why this is important for everybody. I don't think this is a topic just for men in the room. Masculine femininity, because again, if you're a married woman, it's going to help you to understand, okay, what am I trying to encourage in my husband? 
what am I trying to pray for? Or if you're a mother, what am I trying to invest in and encourage in my sons? What am I praying that God will do? What am I wanting to encourage and discourage? Or if you're, you're a young woman where you're growing up and going, okay, what, what do I want to look for and see as healthy masculinity? What kind of man am I wanting to marry? What kind of pastors and elders am I to be drawn to in a church? <laughs> to be sitting to, according to what God says, this is mature masculinity. This is biblical manhood. Um, because again, I think there's as much confusion there of what kind of woman is godliness that men are be drawn to? What kind of man is godliness that, that women are be drawn to, whether in marriage or in churches to submit to leadership? And so I think whether you're young, old, male, female, biblical masculinity and manhood is important. Um, and understanding it's going to be important. Yeah, reasons the discussion is important. Number one, just the authority, clarity, relevance, and sufficiency of Scripture. That beneath the discussion of biblical manhood and womanhood ex- kind of exists a bigger discussion of the Bible itself. I've never met a person who dismisses maleness and femaleness, who dismisses gender outright, who is trying to, again, make it fluid and undefined, who actually takes the Bible seriously. Not one. And so anytime there's that question of, well, don't believe in male and female, don't believe in this, it's just all the same, you get to choose self-determination, well, then you be, talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. Talk about inspiration, and what you'll find is there's, that's not believed. And so that's why there, it's never just about this issue. If you dig down, there's also just, okay, I don't believe in the authority of the Bible. I don't believe in the clarity of Scripture. I don't believe that that God's word is actually sufficient and is to rule and govern the way I think about everything. But then secondly, just the Trinitarian glory of God, that God created the world to display his glory and what it's full of unity with diversity. That different aspects of creation display his glory in different ways. And so we see when he's going to create man and then he's going to create woman for a different set of reasons. And he's going to see how these fit together to show something about his glory to the world in a way that Adam couldn't do it alone. And so God didn't make another man because he's like he doesn't just need more physical help. Which is interesting when we think about he needed a a helper suitable. I think too often we think of the help as somehow just merely getting some stuff done and accomplishing more tasks. Rather than, no, there's, there's something together in their union that is going to show something to the world about what God's like that Adam can't do by himself. And we're going to know later from Ephesians 5 that some of that is okay to show Christ in the church. In order for Maris to really project Christ in the church and to reflect the beauty of that eternal union, you need a male and a female. You need a man and a woman. So even just the Trinitarian glory of God is at stake. That I'm going to create male and female and put out because this is going to show something about who I am in a way that just males won't alone. That just females alone won't. Thirdly, the gospel, yeah, that when we start redefining and rearranging manhood and womanhood to suit our sort of cultural and political sensibilities, the picture of Christ and the church is now distorted and diminished. And so if we blur the lines and all the distinctions, it actually clouds that beautiful picture of Christ and the church that God intends and designs in marriage. Something that just two males can't do together. Something that just two females can't do together. So even the gospel is at stake in this. In these pictures of the gospel that God has given us. Then finally I would say just the true good of people. The true good of the human race is closely connected to adhering to God's design for everything that he's made. Just to take transgenderism as an example, uh, and those who have wrestled with that and then go on to get a sex change operation to alleviate whatever internal conflict they fear, as soon as that operation is done, the likelihood of suicide has gone up tenfold. I mean, the, the distress is not relieved, it's amplified. 
And that's, those are going to be research statistics that, that, that the world doesn't want you to hear. I mean, they're going to be subdued and suppressed. How the misery that is created by dealing with these kinds of conflicts around gender by just acquiescing to the wisdom of man. Rather than counseling and ministering to people under the word of God in a gracious way, in a patient way, but in a truthful way. And we all, if you're parents, you have to experience this. There's times with your young men where, where your sons want to pretend to be girls. And your daughters want to pretend to be boys. And you call it pretend. Right? And the younger they are, the more freedom you may give at times and some pretend. But as they get older, what are you going to start doing? All right, uh, Billy, you're not a girl, you're a boy. And you're going to relate to him as such. All right, Jane, you're not a boy, you're a girl. And you're going to relate to her as such. And if she or he begins to show tensions up, but I really don't want to be a boy, I want to be a girl. I really don't want to be a girl, I want to be a boy. It doesn't mean you just demean them or mock them or slap them down, but rather, you know, okay, we're going to talk about this, we're going to pray about this, but, but no, we're not going to encourage it. <laughs> we're going to encourage you in the direction in which God has made you. Because this is what we actually believe is good for you. And what's interesting is most kids at some point in their development go through those phases of just gender identity, of just, hey, I'm a boy, I kind of wish I was a girl, or I'm a girl, I, I wonder what it'd be like. Even if it isn't interest in being, it may just be curiosity. There may be things that girls see boys being able to do, and like, I, I wish I could do all that. Girls that see things that, or boys that see things that girls can do, I wish I could do some of that. That's actually natural development for kids. And over time, what do you find in almost all kids? If you're loved, nurtured, taught rightly, cared for by parents and others, what do you find happens over time? It works itself out. It goes away. But imagine if you live in a day and age that as soon as that developmental stage is entered into, it's pounced on with, well, then let's, we're going to actually make you, you can, you can decide for yourself. And you're a boy, you want to be a girl, well, then we're going to do everything we can to encourage that, to encourage you to pursue femaleness. Or you're a girl wanting to be a boy, we're just, we're going to encourage that. We're going to, we're going to teach that. We're going to, and that developmental process is approached politically rather than parentally. <laughs> politically rather than just wisely. This is part of what we're going to help. Well, without, again, Scripture and the Lord and just a clear sense of the way God designed it and what's actually good for these kids, you, you lose it. And what you then introduce is you just take your kid who's just going through this natural sort of development that's sort of there in the lake, bobbing up and down, and you throw them out into the ocean. And just, we're going to now create more turmoil than this kid could ever imagine, just because you as the parent are the one that isn't clear. <laughs> it's really not the kid's confusion that's the problem. <laughs> it's our confusion as the adults that, that we've abandoned our sense of what's actually wise, right, good, healthy. So the drew good of people is at stake. And sin did not erase the goodness of God's design, Sin introduced all kinds of tension and trouble into the good design. But sin didn't negate the way men and women are meant to function. Because there's some that are going to argue that the reason for all the male-female distinctions as they are today is because of the fall. It's actually the sin, it's sin that did it. That if, we, if there wasn't sin in the world, then actually males and females would mostly just be the same. Uh, as opposed to actually, no, no, sin didn't change the, the design or the order. It just introduced corruption into some of it. So even within the church, there's plenty of discussion and debate about God's original design and corruption of that design by the fall. But I think we can all agree as Christians that, that men and women are of equal value. I think we, all, we look at Scripture and we see that. Equal value equal dignity, equally displaying of God's image, equally needed, equally important. But then we have to agree there's, there's differences. Uh, there's differences in how God made women. There's differences in what God has assigned. And that's part of the good design, part of what's to be celebrated. So there are two broad Christian views of manhood and womanhood. 
I'm going to call these Christian, not one Christian and one non-Christian, but both Christian. First, you might have heard of complementarianism. Just, and what these are is these views of seeing malehood, manhood and womanhood in the Scripture and understanding how what Scripture teaches should play itself out in human life. So complementarianism affirms God created man and woman with equal dignity and worth and designed them with distinct roles and responsibilities. Distinct roles and responsibilities in the home, in the church, in society, in relationships. And that these designs are rooted in God's design and creation, not rooted in sin and not rooted in mere social customs. And so how God designed certain roles and responsibilities in marriage are not social constructions merely. There are some ways different cultures you may go and, and how some of it plays out is distinct to a culture. But what we'll see is there's certain fundamental distinctions that are rooted in God's design, not social custom. But then the second broad Christian view is going to be called egalitarianism that also affirms God created man and woman with equal dignity and worth but also with the same roles and responsibilities. And it's going to see less distinction in the roles and responsibilities. The fall corrupted God's good original design. And so the differing roles are the result of the fall rather than the result of God's design. And so the idea of, of headship and submission, the idea of leadership and support, and where those fall in a home, in a church, in a community, are seen, okay, this isn't part of God's original design. This is because of the fall is why this came about. And so these views are going to answer important questions about men and women and their relationship to one another in very different ways. Um, questions like, what are the God-given similarities and differences between men and women? Uh, these two, are, they're going to answer those differently, complementary and egalitarianism. Did God assign men and women to specific roles in homes, in churches, in society? Is there such a thing as headship? Is there such a thing as submission in marriage? And what does it mean? So these are two paradigms that are going to answer those questions in a very different way. Yeah, did God design and instruct men and women to make unique and equally valuable contributions to the life of the church? And so some of it goes back to, I think, our world's obsession with power, that it sees complementary roles as insulting. That it sees, okay, if you're not leading, you're not important. That's actually not at all a Christian idea. <laughs> That's not a biblical idea. That's actually the world's idea. Because what are the messages the world gives you now? If you're a wife and a mom, and you care for your home, and that's where most of your energies and your attention and your passions are directed. What does the world think of you? you missed the mark. What's that? You missed the mark You're missing the mark? You sacrificed your career. You sacrificed something more important to do it. Yeah. You didn't have real goals. You just must not have had real goals. Hmm? You're being demeaned. What's that? You're not contributing to something. Could anything be more far from the truth? You know, when you think of, is there anything some of our generations need right now more than just wise, discerning direction and care and teaching and instruction and stability? And, and so that idea that where, where when you look at Scripture, what does it do with womanhood? Is it demeaned or exalted as this beautiful, important contribution? And motherhood and being a wife and even if you're single and not married, don't have kids, just how you contribute to the life of the church, how you contribute to the care of a community, just the role you fill, like scripture takes it and just says, this is precious. This is important. This is valuable. And okay, men, and here's yours. This is precious. This is important. And sees those as complementary, but not the same, that you need both. All this brings us then to toward an understanding of biblical manhood. We're not going to get much into those, those views of it per se, but getting right to what is biblical manhood? What does scripture teach us about manhood? How has God designed and formed and instructed men to identify, to relate, to live in a way that is unique to manhood and distinct from womanhood?
That's some of what we'll focus on. We're not just going to focus on here's things that are true for all of us, but here are things that are distinctive for manhood. Um, I like to start with what masculinity isn't, <laughs> what manhood isn't. It isn't, number one, macho man. That's not what manhood is. It's not that, okay, you can bench press at least 300 pounds. Okay, you can shoot this many things from this distance. You know how to gut a pig. You know how to process your own beef. You know, you, know, you can grow your beard to your chest if you really wanted to. Um, you could easily get into a bar brawl and make your way around, no problem. Um, I mean, just whatever macho man is, where you're domineering, you're dominating, you're powerful, you're physically strong, and even comparing to other guys, you're more athletic, you're faster, you're, that's not how scripture talks about manhood. It's amazing, we never see Jesus race anyone. <laughs> you ever thought about that? Never see him shoot a basketball. We never see him shoot anything. We never see him, and so that doesn't make any of those, those are all fine, perfectly good activities, but clearly not the measure of masculinity is machismo or any such thing. Nor is it, number two, relative man, where sort of the modern metrosexual movement to an extreme where it's relative man, just he's comfortable even being a woman. He's comfortable being feminine. He's comfortable, or he just, he just decides what he's going to be. It's basically the same as womanhood, but with slightly different biology. So surrendering roles of leadership, surrendering roles of provision, of protection, in favor of mutual submission, co-nurturing. And then those are labeled as secure, admirable, mature as a man. So we're also going to say, okay, that's not biblical masculinity either. It's not this whatever fleshly, worldly stereotype of macho man, but nor is it just relative, whatever you want it to be. 1 Timothy 3.5, For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So just in that statement where we hear, okay, mature manhood involves some kind of, okay, manage his own household. Or 1 Timothy 5, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's speaking about men, not women. Any man who doesn't provide for his own household, that's worse than a non-Christian. Um, you're identified, that's just not biblical masculinity. So we just see this idea of leading and managing being part of manhood. We, we see this idea of providing being part of it. So we don't want cultural stereotypes to guide us in some macho manhood, but we also don't want to absorb masculinity into femininity as a category and just make it relative. So, so what is it, basically? What is biblical masculinity and manhood? Well, let me give you a few definitions. Here's Al Mohler. He says, as defined in the Bible, manhood is a functional reality demonstrated in a man's fulfillment of responsibility and leadership. Or this is Doug Wilson. He says, simply put, masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. I actually love that phrase. The glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Or Piper and Grudem say, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. When he says differing relationships, what they mean is, is that man is not called to relate to every woman in his life the exact same way. Each man is given a certain sphere of leadership and responsibility. So my benevolent responsibility to my wife is not the same as my benevolent responsibility to my daughters. Nor is my benevolent responsibility to my daughters the same as my benevolent responsibility to all the other women in the church. Nor is all my benevolent responsibility to the women in the church the same as my responsibility to all the women in the world. So that's what they mean by differing relationships. So this sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, care for, protect in ways that are appropriate given those relationships. Now, how do you think that kind of a statement is going to land on the world to lead, provide for, and protect women in my life? 
What's the world, what, what do women, especially in the world, think about that? Why is that insulting? What's that? It's the lead part. So, there's one lead, yeah. Yeah, so the idea of lead, what are you talking about lead? I don't need anybody to lead me, and how dare you? But I think even protect, the idea of protect. I don't know if you have yet, but I've, I've already encountered here in this area the sort of the, the insult of me opening a door for, for a woman. I don't know if you've been there yet, guys, but where you open the door and she stands and looks like, I'll get it myself, thank you. And will wait for me to either walk through or get out of the way her to open the door herself. And so that's a picture of just that gesture insulted her in some way. Something that, again, I get a sense of, okay, the, a benevolent responsibility to just make sure, how do I, okay, how do I open this door? How do I let you go first? How do I sort of in this way honor womanhood through sacrificial responsibility? And then that is received as insulting. Um, Yes. Yeah, there's still that instinct that if somebody runs into the bank while I'm in there with a gun and I find the nearest woman and put her in front of me. <laughs> I don't think most people are going, wow, he's really into empowering women. You know, wow, he is so progressive, you know, that he would, he would just have that kind of kind gesture to show the world how strong he thinks this woman is. Um, or would not the takeaway be, yeah, that's not a man. That's not a mature man. That's not someone who understands sacrificial responsibility. But the guy who steps in front, who says, no, I'll get behind. I'll put the kids and women here. I'll stand in front. And if anybody's going to die, it'll be me. Is there not something in all of us that goes, yes, that's the way it ought to be? Um, how do we arrive at an understanding of biblical manhood? Well, I think firstly, just the creation narrative. If you want to turn to Genesis 2. Yeah, verse 7, then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And it's going to go on to describe how in from man, he's going to create woman. And so just the idea that man was created first, that Paul in 1 Timothy 2 thinks that's significant. Man created, then from man, woman was created. Genesis 2, 15 through 24, man was put in Eden to work and to keep it as stewards of God's creation. And so we saw, again, even there, building blocks of responsibility and leadership. Man was also given commands, obey, teach. Genesis 3, 8 and 9, after the fall, after the rebellion, after Adam and Eve rebelled, God came and addressed who first? Adam. Who ate first? Eve. Who'd God go to first? Who'd God hold most responsible? Adam, you. I gave you the instruction. Okay, while Eve is having this conversation with your wife, where's Adam? He's right there. What's he saying? Nothing. <laughs> and that you see, even there, right woven into the fall, the lack of sacrificial responsibility. The lack of the glad assumption to step in and, and lead in a way that is constructive and good. And was that good for Eve that he deferred? Mm -mm. So it wasn't even loving of her. And so we even see there, and, and so God, when he shows up, he's like, okay, I know, uh, Eve, you ate first, so I'm going to start with you. Mm -mm. He goes straight to Adam. Why are you hiding, Adam? What'd you do? What happened? That's where the conversation starts. Yeah, Genesis 3, 16 through 19, the fall brought about a new reality for Adam. The very ground in creation was cursed for Eve, pain and childbearing. Conflict with the person she was to be a helper with. 
And so part of that new reality is going to be confusion and conflict in their relationship, but not rearrangement of the responsibilities or the roles. So we can just go to the creation account, and we're going to stop there. We could walk through much of Scripture and see just by God's design, there's different and distinctiveness to, to maleness and to what God is calling men to be. I think number two, we have the presentation of godly and ungodly examples of manhood in Scripture. You know, Saul was the first king of Israel. It says in Acts 13, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he had testified, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So just right there we're seeing, okay, here's Saul, not a good example. Here's David, who is a good example. Here's David, who is a man after God's heart. And so we could just take the life of so much of David's life and go, okay, what does it mean to be a faithful, obedient man? Over and against what Saul was. Now think about, was Saul impressive? Was he more impressive than David? Yeah, Remember when Saul was first presented to Israel as king? What did everybody think? thought he was pretty great. Why? He was tall. was the first thing. He was handsome. was the second thing. And then he went out and he won some battles for him. You know, and so you see even there just how quickly they're going to go to that. And then when it's time to find a new one, a new king, as Saul's going to be put away... Samuel is sent to Jesse to get a, to one of the boys that, or one of his sons to be king. And remember the firstborn is presented to Samuel. And remember what Samuel says? Behold, the Lord's anointed is before me. Why, do you, why did he say that? Again, he was big. He was strong. He was impressive. And remember what God then said to Samuel? No, don't, don't look at what man sees. That's not what I'm looking at. I've got someone else in mind. He's not chosen. So you see just in Scripture this constant presentation of here's what the world thinks manhood is. Here's what God says it is. And so we have those examples in the narratives of Scripture. Yeah, Deborah reproved Barak for his unwillingness to lead the armies of Israel when called to do so. Remember that? Barak is like, well, Deborah, if you'll go with me, I'll go. And so Deborah goes, well, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And that's not an insult to women. That's an insult to Barak. (laughs) You're meant to see, yeah, God called you to lead to sacrificial responsibility, and you're not willing to. And so that's going to have some consequences. And also in Judges 5, from Ephraim, they, they... they marched down into the valley following you, Benjamin, and with your kinsmen from Machir, marched down the commanders from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, Issachar faithful to Barak. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. And that was meant to be a reproof to Reuben. He's going to say, oh, that these leaders led in Israel. That's going to be part of her song of thanksgiving to God is that God rose up men to lead. And then there's going to be a reproof of Reuben. You just sat there. (laughs) You just watched your sheep. You thought about it. You thought, you know, what do you think? Maybe, maybe not. And then you just listen to the whistling of the sheep. And they're going to be reproved for that. Yeah, we see the Bible contrasting two men. One is the first Adam, who was created to steward God's creation, to provide leadership for Eve, to obey the commands of God, and he didn't turn out well. But then there's the second Adam, who's Jesus, who's the perfect man, who served sacrificially, who used authority for good, who laid down his life for his bride, the church, who fully obeyed the commands of God. And through union with Christ, men become more fully men. Through union with Christ, women become more fully women. And so we could say that Jesus perfectly displays biblical masculinity where Adam fell short. But we also say Jesus is the one who will help women fulfill biblical femininity.
So just the presentation of godly and ungodly examples in Scripture. But then thirdly, the presentation of godly exemplars in Scripture. So examples are, okay, look at these lives as examples. Exemplars, okay, look at this model. Look at this exemplar. So turn to 1 Timothy 3, if you would. And someone read for us verses 1 through 7. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Just a beautiful example of here's what biblical masculinity is. Here's what biblical manhood is. It's where every man in the church should see Paul's description put out there and go, okay, that's what I want to pray to be. That's the direction I pray the Lord would take me. That every one of us as fathers want to look at our sons and go, okay, Lord, this is what I I would love and delight in seeing you turn my boys into. These kinds of men who are husbands of one wife. Is that really honored today? Just a man who's a husband, who's just faithful to his wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. (laughs) I mean, you just go down this list and you see, okay, yeah, this is not what the world calls masculinity or mature manhood. But yeah, this is what God's going to call it. It's like, okay, man, this is what it means to become uh, a mature man. Yeah, Titus 1, Titus 2. There's lots of other places we could go. But then how do we grow toward mature manhood? If that's what it is, if that's where, okay, this is where the Lord's taking us, how do we grow there? I think we could say a lot of things, but I'll just highlight a few steps. The first is acknowledge maleness. <laughs> you know, you know that just that we have to start by saying that. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge that it exists. Acknowledge that it's real. That God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. So men have to begin by acknowledging this is who God made you as male. Secondly, accept authority. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. That if we really want to mature, if we really want to be even mature heads to our wives, then we must first accept what? Christ is our head. He is our authority. He is the one that we submit to, that we honor. I don't feel enough is made of that point when it comes to mature manhood, when it comes to being a father, being a husband. That that begins with submission to Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, love for Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ. And if we're not doing that, everything else gets really ugly. Everything else gets really distorted and ultimately becomes malformed from what biblical masculinity is really meant to be. And so all healthy maleness begins with submission. Isn't that interesting? Submission to the Lord Christ, which is where the different from the world that thinks, okay, all healthy maleness begins with submission to other people. Just submission to even the women in your life. Whereas God's going to say, no, it begins with submission to Christ, following Him. Yeah, thirdly, assume God given roles and responsibilities. That's part of maturing as a man and in masculinity, is assume God given roles and responsibilities. Of number one, servant leadership. That that's part of maturing as a man, is learning how to lead through serving. How to lead through sacrifice. How to give yourself over for the good of others. 
You know, Jesus is going to say, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And time and time again, he's teaching that to his disciples, right? Here's what leadership is. It's service. Here's what leadership is. It's sacrifice. Here's what leadership is. It's caring for others. It's using your strength to care for others. But also part of it is working and keeping providing and protecting, that part of maturing as a young man into a man is learning to work hard, learning to keep things that have been entrusted to you, learning to provide, even if it's in the smallest ways, learning to protect. And so those are words that with our sons we want to be using. Um, That's not just about, okay, how are you going to get retirement if you don't work hard? How are you going to get a big house if you don't work hard? How are you going to get nice hard? I mean, how are you going to get great grades if you don't work hard? We could just easily say, how are you going to become a man? How are you going to fulfill what God has called you to be as a man without working? Since that's what God created and gave Adam, he's a steward of the creation. He's God works, you're in his image, so you're going to work. Not an incessant, worldly, greedy, frantic, anxious work, but a peaceful faithful, constant, joyful approach to life that involves keeping and working the things that God's given you. But then also providing, where it's not just work for our own sake, it's work to give. It's work to share. It's work to provide for others. Um, It's one of the reasons why I think many women have felt the need to be, to have plenty of education, to have a career. When you talk to women today out there in the world, why do they feel they need to have a career? Even if they're married, what's in the back of their mind? What could always happen any moment? Yeah, he's going to leave me. He's going to refuse. I've got to be able to provide for myself. Should any wife ever have that fear? (laughs) Now, maybe he may die. There could be that. But should there ever be that fear? Yeah, any minute he could just walk out. (laughs) And, and so even that in our culture, I think is, is one of those symptoms of men not being clear in communicating, I'm going to provide for you. <laughs> you eat first, then me. That no matter what it takes, you know, I'm going to be, by God's grace, faithful to provide and care for. But then also to protect. It's an awful thing. That's what makes abuse in marriage so terrible is here's the man that is called to protect, and he becomes the predator. The man who's called to shield from mistreatment and abuse is the very one doing it. There's something about it that is so ugly and ungodly, um, but rather to protect. C, honor women. It's part of a God-given role and responsibility is, is you honor women. You show respect. You you don't treat the girls in your life like they're boys. We tell that to our, guys, our boys sometimes is, yeah, don't, you don't treat the girls like they're boys. You don't just shove them over, you know, right? You don't just, and there's just ways that you're going to talk, interact with, relate to that is going to honor this is a girl, not a boy. Honor women. Sacrificial love and marriage. There's another way we assume God-given roles and responsibilities. Receive help. That's part of manhood. Learn to ask for help when you need it. Be humble in this way. Accountability to, to one another is a part of mature manhood, where you put yourself in a relationship with other men who can hold you accountable for being faithful. You know, Proverbs 18, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all sound counsel. So just that idea that a man who isolates is not a healthy man. He's raging against wise counsel. And so accountability with one another. Relating to Christ as as part of his bride, as a part of manhood. You learn from older men is another way that we grow in masculinity and manhood in accord with the gospel. So yeah, Titus 2, 1 through 15, where this idea of, okay, we're, we're to be learning from older men. Ask God for constant help in prayer. And for daily faith, I don't think it's something that we can just get up in the morning and just go, okay, here I go, I'm going to do this. We have to ask God to help us, to grow us as men. I think be men of the word would be a sixth thing. Just feed on scripture. 
Just everything we've talked about today just begins with God's Word. So to grow as men, we want to be feeding on the Word. Um, I want to leave a couple minutes for questions, for comments, for, um, yeah, just any reflections on what you've heard today? Kyle. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's number one, welcome to the club. There'll be many things you're called to do where your wife is more gifted, um, more qualified in terms of just ability. And so I think just to encourage him to say, but you know, some of that's going to be true all the time. There's going to be things that she's better at, but you're still called to love her in this way. And so it may be just helping him understand what does it mean to actually lead. And so it may just be read the Bible. Just read it out loud with her. Pray together through it. And so some of it's hearing, okay, what are you thinking this involves? And do you think it means teaching a sermon or walking through sort of some systematic theology outline? Or, or do you think it's just faithfully reading the word and opening it together and then praying together through it? And then just talking about what you're reading. So sometimes it's that. At other times, it's, it doesn't have to mean you make all the decisions per se, that, that you're seeking her input, her insight, her wisdom, but then you're leading that conversation. You're asking for her input. Ultimately, you're going to make that decision, but often it's based on what she thinks is best, and you, you agree. So even the idea that there's, there's just mutual discussion and conversation, but just at the end of the day, don't be threatened by her giftedness and ability, but, but appreciate, okay, this is going to help you. Um, go ahead. And that's a great word on it, just, and that word initiative. That it, yeah, it's, it doesn't mean you know everything. It means you're the one initiating the conversation, initiating the question, sort of initiating, hey, let's talk about this. And there's going to be a lot of times where you're like, I don't know what to do, let's pray. Well, that's leadership. I don't know what to do, let's pray. I'm not sure what's best, let's seek the Lord for wisdom. What do you think? Even just that question to your wife, what do you, what do you think? And give input, that's, that's leadership. So rather than passivity, avoidance, um, it's going to be, and then number, th- I would also say it's also a commitment to learn. It's realizing that it, it isn't that you're going to enter into marriage or those relationships and just, you just know it all. I mean, the whole idea is, no, I, I have to learn how to. And, and often that learning is going to involve, oh, I probably shouldn't do that again. Um, or, okay, next time I'll maybe do it this way. And so also just to help a brother like that not think just all or nothing. Either you're ready and you're a great leader, or you're just not and you don't do anything. But rather, no, it starts with initiative, with prayer, with just learning how to lead in those conversations in a way that's gentle and loving. But it's a good question. Justina? Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. Because I definitely don't think some of the, the roles and responsibilities we see in homes and in churches at times is exactly the same in government or in, in other places. So there may be a moment where in this particular situation, this is the woman who has the authority uh, in this way. And I don't think that is in some way breaking what God has in mind. So there's going to ways where, okay, I'm going to defer to this woman who is my boss 
So she has authority over X, Y, and Z that is in no way diminishing a femininity or masculinity. Um, same with any number of leaders, whether that's in military or in different places. And so I think that's part of what Piper gets at when he says, in, you know, all in proportion demands differing relationships. And so it's identifying, okay, how am I to relate to her? And so if this is now that the robber runs into the bank and the woman next to me is a police officer with a weapon, I may not dive in front of her because, okay, that's going to actually interfere with her ability to do what needs to be done. Uh, if there's a woman I'm going to dive in front of, it's going to be a different one than that. So recognizing the differing relationships, deferring where needs be. So I, so I think it's a great question that just requires wisdom in that, in that moment. But. Eric, you want to pray for us? Yeah. Well. Amen. Thanks, y'all. See you next week.